0: Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you today from Cambridge, Massachusetts, where it's cold and rainy uh, because of the time of the week. Of course, we are joined by Ryan Goodman, somewhere in New York City. How are you doing, Ryan?
1: Pretty well, David. Thanks.
0: And Kavita Patel in Washington, D.C. How are you, Kavita?
2: Good. Also cloudy and rainy. And we are delighted
0: to be joined today by one of the very, very best columnists that there is in the United States, Jennifer Rubin of The Washington Post. How are you today?
3: Wow, thank you for that. I am doing just fine. Yes, it is rainy. I am uh, not in the same exact location as Kavita, but yes, it is kind of a grim day today, but only because of the weather. Otherwise, I think I have a sunny political disposition.
0: Th- that's great, and that I, I assume is what you've always been known for throughout your <laughs> throughout throughout your career. But I, no, I, I I didn't mean to just flatter you. I have to say, through the past four years, you helped sustain me and millions of others. I thought you know you brought a huge dose of sanity um, uh, to the way that uh, the Trump insanity was covered. So we are we are grateful for that.
1: Well, thank uh, what you. did you?
0: So last night, um, our new president spoke to a joint session of Congress and that was kind of a sparse house because of social distancing. Um, and, his, and his talk was very wonky and detailed and America loved it. The, the poll that I saw, 85% of those watching the speech liked it Um, And uh, uh, I, you know, haven't seen a number like that in American politics since, you know, George Washington, something like that. Uh, What did you think, Jen?
3: Well, those polls are self-selecting, of course, because the hardcore critics don't usually tune in to torment themselves unless they're journalists who are uh, forced to watch them as we were for four years. I will say two things struck me right off the bat. First of all, was that tableau of the two women, Speaker Pelosi and Vice President Harris uh, behind um, the uh, president. And, you know, we know that these are two of the most powerful women in the world, but... Pictures do tell um, a powerful story, and some that image, not only having two women but one woman of color there, really kind of it was a little bit of an emotional charge for me. And the other thing that struck me, other than the weird kind of setup and the echoey chamber, um, was just how normal it was. I just kept sighing with relief over and over again. There wasn't crazy rhetoric, it wasn't hyper-partisan, he talked about democracy, he seemed to know what Americans stood for, Um, he defended um, equal protection under the law, he defended voting rights. All of this sounds so mundane and so basic, unless you have lived through four years of Donald Trump And so I think his entire tone and the values portion of the speech was compelling. As far as the substance, I think he has this superpower, which is to present very progressive ideas in a way that's totally matter of fact, totally reasonable um, and will not strike the average American, I think as bizarre or exotic um, or radical. And that was certainly on display. And um, granted he's got a Republican Congress to work with, uh, but I think he definitely communicated what his presidency is all about. And maybe we should stop saying the cliche that, well, he's not a very good public speaker. I thought it was a pretty good public speech.
0: Yeah, he was was pretty good. You know, somebody once, a senior government official, told me that one of the secrets to job success was picking the right predecessor Uh, and, you know, following Donald Trump. It it might have appeared to us very different if he was following Barack Obama, for example, Um, although substantively he was much more daring than Obama ever was. Kavita, you worked in the Obama White House. What was your reaction? And do you have a question for Jen?
2: Yeah, of course, uh, and I'll—I'll. I'll, my reaction—I'll so start with the reaction. Um, it was—it was, it, it was kind of everything you expected in the first joint Congress speech. Uh, it had a little bit of everything. It felt like it was like Oprah Winfrey. You know, you get a car, you get a car. Your topic gets mentioned. Your topic gets mentioned. So he did. You know, that's what the speech is supposed to do. It's supposed to make everyone feel like their issue gets touched. Um, so it's no surprise that a lot of the people in the healthcare community kind of rattled because they said. He only said healthcare three times, you know? So there's always kind of that back and forth. I thought he did great. My favorite part though, is because of the distancing, you can really see people's reaction, you know, because there's so much distance. And I just thought it was great that at like 45 minutes into it, James Clyburn was like, Let's just move on. Come on. We're done. (laughs) I think that's, I think that's an appropriate reaction because at about 45 minutes to the dot on these speeches, you're like, all right, we need to wrap this up now. We're, we're kind of done, but I thought it was, it was great and, and just a different tone. I did not have, um, I think some Americans have been critical that, uh, or some op-eds and columns have been critical that you know there wasn't as much detail and how is he going to get that done? At, but that that's not the point of these speeches. <laughs> They're not there to lay out legislative intent. So I thought he accomplished. Um, and exceeded kind of the bar that was set to try to cover a number of things. And for Jennifer, just enjoy reading the columns. I, I might shift a little bit and say that I think it was either on Twitter or maybe it was in your column directly today. Um, just thinking about this kind of tension with kind of the economic recovery and, and, and really what I think is gonna be the crux of the debate around tax cuts, did did the tax cuts of the Trump era actually benefit portions of the economy? Will the corporate kind of tax increases that are being proposed, or Brian Deese is certainly trying to do his job on the National Economic Council to sell these, you know, and then you, will that materialize in kind of the economic prosperity that we're hopeful for? Tie this to Jerome Powell's comments with, you know, jobs are coming back, the economy's coming back, we're controlling the virus, by the way, inflation's ex- going up. Just it, curious about your perspective, because you've done such a good job both during previous and current administration thinking about the economic policy, but how that affects like the regular American. So none of us, but kind of, you know,
3: what well, really most doing? helpful, I, I actually spoke with uh, Brian, um, who graciously agreed to speak to a, a small number of calmness. So we got a little bit more on exactly the topic you were um, just raising. Their sense is that, first of all, um, the tax cuts are on exactly the right people politically, because it's remarkable that the polls show the plans are popular, but they're even more popular when you tell them you're going to tax corporations and rich people. And they have really gone out of their way to try to slice it very thin. So even on the top earners, um, when you're talking about that bump in the capital gains tax, um, you're talking about people over a million dollars. So that's you know a very narrow um, stratum. They are quite candid. They think um, it is time to simply debunk and ridicule, frankly, uh, side economics. Um, Brian said today that it didn't work in 2016. There's no evidence that there was a considerable Increase in investment or a permanent job boom. And if it didn't work when you put in the tax cut, it probably isn't going to hurt when you take them out again. And after all, we're not even going back to a 35% rate. The proposal is for a 28% rate. So they're feeling fairly good uh, about that, you know, I think that part of it. Um, and I think they're walking a very fine line. On one hand, they want to sell this as transformative, as bold, as um, really a a new phase in uh, America. And at the same time, they don't want to freak people out. So they will tell you, for example, well, this is just taking our taxing levels back to the 1990s. This is just taking our spending levels as a percentage of GDP back to the 1960s. So it really is kind of a delicate walk that they're doing. And I suspect that although he said on multiple times he was reaching out to Republicans, it's not so much the Republicans in Congress that he is talking to. He's talking to the country at large and to those more conservative Democrats who may be concerned about too much taxes may be concerned if we're overloading on the spending. So I, it is an interesting phenomenon to watch them. And I think people say, well, we're the end of um, Reagan, meaning the end of government is the enemy, the end of government, uh, small government. But it's also the end of Reaganomics. And um, I think both sides have thrown in the towel. Um, during four years of Trump, the Republicans sure didn't care about um, deficits and their tax cuts didn't pay for themselves. So perhaps collectively, we're willing to just all move on.
0: Uh, by the way, I got that sense, too, that he was talking to the conservative Democrats. And last night during the speech, they would periodically cut to Joe Manchin. Who was in this kind of weird corner of the? Like, I didn't even know there were like. It was almost corners. like an
2: isolation box. Like, right? and he was <laughs> off
0: there, and, and every time he like shifted in his seat, I was like, "Oh my god, Joe Manchin! He's um, like, get him a get that man a glass of water, maybe uh, like a theragun or a little masseuse or something like that to help, you know, help him endure this." Ryan, uh, any reaction and question for Jen?
1: One reaction I had that I'm sure we'll talk about at some point is actually what you had written about David about how much of the piece was framed around China in terms of the foreign policy implications. I thought that was really remarkable. Um, And then the other piece that I thought was remarkable is just how much of it was this bipartisan outreach, at least in the way in which he framed things. Uh, He does refer to the former guy um, at one point uh, with respect to the reduction of uh, uh, costs for uh, prescription drugs. He said, quote, the last president had that as an objective. Um, So I thought that was... uh, interesting and then he multiple things he said because of all of you because of all of you we've done this we've done that some point i thought like he was talking to the chamber but then he said because of all you americans like republican and the democrats he also said we kept our commitments with respect to the relief checks democrats and republicans there's another time where he criticizes uh, but he says um we've talked about this long enough democrats and republicans and now it's time to get something done. And then he also said specifically that he applauded a group of Republicans who just brought forward their own plan because he's willing to take into account what um, alternative proposals are. I just thought there was really a remarkable theme that ran throughout the speech. Um, I guess the one question where that lands is it'd just be great to have you Jennifer talk about how you do think some of the legislation will or will not get passed given where we are at or where you think we will be at with respect to any form of filibuster reform, maybe specific to certain particular pieces of legislation rather than wholesale filibuster reform, but what you envision coming?
3: I find it highly unlikely that on anything Biden is going to find 10 reasonable Republicans. I get up to two or three, maybe on something that vaguely remember resembles an infrastructure bill, although shrunk down. But beyond that, I don't see 10 Republicans coming over on any of this, not on um, the American Families Plan, not on um, an expansive view of infrastructure, certainly not on um, something like voting rights, where Republicans have tied themselves to this notion that if we just limit the number of people who get to vote, maybe we can hold on for a few more election cycles. Um, Where are these reasonable Republicans? I don't know who they are. I haven't seen any of them. So both he and I think Joe Manchin are living in a little bit of a fantasy world that if they invite these people in, if they schmooze them, if they start, you know, um, seeing if we can horse trade, that they're going to get 10 people to behave rationally. Everything we know about the Republican Party right now and the Senate uh, Republican uh, cohort is that there aren't reasonable people there. Um, For goodness sakes, they could only get seven people to um, convict uh, someone for blatantly um, instigating an insurrection. So I think it's going to be a matter of individual techniques for how he gets by each hurdle. I can very easily see him using reconciliation again for parts of this the current jobs uh, proposal. I could see him um, when we do get around to voting rights, um, coming up with some flowery language, um, sort of twist around pretzel um, kind of arrangement that makes Joe Manchin feel like he hasn't repealed the filibuster when in fact they just need the 50 votes or 51 votes to pass some fundamental um, voting rights reform. By the way, I I don't think that they're going to be able to get HR one, and my preference, frankly, would be that they get HR four, which is um, the uh, reconstituted preclearance provisions of the Voting Rights Act. That is um, critical because that's the all-purpose um, instrument for preventing all of these measures that inhibit voting. So that'll be a I think a strategic call down the road. So I think that doesn't mean that he shouldn't be doing what he's doing because he's doing something else. And that is he's cementing the Democratic Party as the party that is center left that has something that people like me, who used to be Republicans before the Republicans became insane, can identify with. That there are people who don't see him as some kind of um, you know, um, social uh, scientist who's going to uh, re-engineer our lives. Um, he is trying to establish the simple principle that government can do good and that if competently managed, which he is trying um, his best to do, that it can um, improve their lives and the lives of Americans. And we've had so much discussion and so much tumult about um, government as the enemy, government as corrupt, um, government as the bad guy, that if Biden could succeed in one way in which Obama really was not able to do, and that is to make government palatable and relevant for the vast majority of Americans, I think that would be really an astonishing achievement, um, considering where we've been, you know, as of January sixth, and where we've been over the last four years. So I I don't know if they've thought all this through, um, or whether it's just all of us who are kind of um, analyzing things. Um, But I do suspect that they do see an opportunity that when one party goes entirely over the cliff, which the Republicans really have, that opens up, Enormous political terrain for the other party to try to really expand their base, to really build their coalition. And there have been a lot of analogies to FDR, but I think of FDR in a different way. And that is, he built a coalition of somewhat disparate groups that lasted all the way through the 1960s. That was farmers, that was union, that was uh, immigrants, uh, that was African-Americans. Um, and he was able to do that by giving people stuff um, and by aligning government with the little guy. Um, so if Biden can pull that off, I, I think that would be you know, pretty remarkable. I am curious, Ryan, what you thought about the foreign policy parts of the speech. Um, Even Jen Psaki joked the other day that foreign policy people are never pleased with the amount of foreign policy that gets put into these speeches because they tend not to be the hot political issues. Um, But what did you think of those uh, portions of the speech? I mean,
1: I guess there's a difficulty in them in the sense that there was nothing so surprising or new. So we know by now um, the whole wind down from Afghanistan is such a major portion of it. Exactly where he's drawn the line with respect to Russia and still hoping for kind of a future of some level of cooperation with Russia, but the other part, the China part, I thought was in some sense um, politically marvelous in a, in a way in which um, Democratic debates had been criticized for not even referencing China or, and my goodness gracious, he could not have foregrounded it more. And I think it was also an execution of what they're trying to do, which is to make to Ameri- the American public more salient how foreign policy implicates their lives, the connection between jobs and foreign policy. And, and it was also somewhat so I thought, politically deft at pushing the political winds in a certain sense behind each of these legislative proposals because it's like this legislative proposal over jobs or this one over education that's in order to compete against China. This one's just compete against it. Right? So it's like, if we're really gonna frame things around that and there's now you know solid intelligence analysis from both the prior team, but the Biden team in terms of the, Chinese, the threat from China, uh, it, makes a, it made a lot of sense uh, in that way. Um, so yeah, I, for me personally, I would have loved more details and all sorts of other things like it um, or for things that I think are still over the horizon in terms of tough decisions for them but uh, obviously the speech wasn't for me and then I was not the audience.
3: (laughs) Yeah, Uh, a couple of things struck me. One was he really is using China like Sputnik was used in the 1960s. It's the reason for education. It's the reason for investment in R&D. And really, we haven't had any president who's tried that um, in a very, very long time. It kind of petered out during the Cold War and people stopped doing that kind of stuff. Um, I thought the other thing that was such a striking difference was returning uh, to foreign policy, um, human rights um, and to making an affirmative embrace of American values. Democrats, I think because democracy got kind of mushed together with George W. Bush's um, wars of uh, election, um, I think for a long time weren't too thrilled about talking about democracy or democracy promotion because that triggered the sense, well, democracy promotion means going and invading another country and setting up a new democracy, but of course it doesn't mean that, Um, and it was I think, um, for me, so gratifying to see someone um, who embraced American values, human rights, universal human rights, um, and who saw the connection that what we do at home, how we behave towards one another affects how effective we are in the world. And um, really, um, again, using the Cold War analogy, if we can't get our own house in order on race um, and other divisive issues, how are we going to lead the world? And I think his analysis that geopolitically we're in this fight between illiberal autocracies and democracies is exactly right. And I think um, if he plays that correctly, um, and nothing spins out of control like further invasions of uh, Ukraine by the Russians or some military action by uh, China. I think there's actually an opportunity to build a pretty strong consensus because the worst held secret I think in Washington is that from center left through maybe even pretty far right. There is a lot of consensus on foreign policy these days. Um, there is a, a sense that um, you know um, we need to reassert American leadership. The world doesn't lead on its own. There is a sense that um, our allies are really important, and we have screwed those up. There is a sense that we're in a big power competition with China. There is a sense um, that Russia is a rogue actor. It was Trump's presence that kind of screwed this all up and had Republicans, you know, sounding like the governed liberals or or Taft isolationists. I'm not sure what it was that he was promulgating. But with him and the end of the picture, um, I actually think that there's, you know, sort of a, a nice internationalism and a values-based internationalism that might kind of take hold for a while. Um, maybe that's too sunny, but that was my hope.
2: So Jennifer, if you, I, I agree. And then what I find interesting though, is our vaccine nationalism, even at the federal level, even at the white house level. So, you know, there's a lot of like caveats about why we can't send X, Y, and Z, what the DPA really allows for what, um, you know, just to be honest with you, like sending, you know, supplies for 20 million vaccines to India. I mean, let's be, candid, that's not going to do much. But we're not talking just about India, we're talking about global kind of supply issues. Do you think this could come back here? I am concerned that we play this forward. And because of just the rest of the world's kind of frenzied, chaotic kind of situation around the pandemic, everything we just talked about, gets nullified a little bit, or at least muted to some degree. Um, you You know, Samantha Power got confirmed. She's going to be coming into USAID. I mean, there's a number of incredibly smart people coming into these posts. But this becomes something that the very thing that kind of has ushered him into American approval polls could kind of bring him down, especially as we get closer to midterms. And people use that as like a way to say that the president has failed. Does that strike, not just Jennifer, does anybody worry about that?
3: I think they are so panic stricken that someone is going to say we're taking care of foreigners before we take care of Americans, that they have bent over backwards to delay sending anything anywhere until a really high percentage of Americans have gotten vaccinated. And listen, if they've been so successful, and I think they have in getting the supply problem solved, now the problem is on the um, buyer side, if you will, on the, the patient side in America, if they've been so successful in jump-starting this um, production, they should be able to do it. They should be able to, you know, once we were the arsenal of democracy by churning out Airplanes and tanks and things like that. Um, we should be able to be the arsenal um, for um, the world in terms of, um, you know, the vaccine. So I think it's caution. It's the same kind of caution that gripped them in that momentary panic when they were afraid to raise the level for uh, refugees, that someone was going to accuse them of open borders, or someone was going to accuse them of not taking America interests um, to heart. I think they've gotten spooked because that has been such a refrain um, from the right that they at times bend over backwards in ridiculous terms that um, really don't suit them very well. Um, so I think um, as those numbers get up, um, they really do need to put a Make a push um, to get vaccine out. You saw the reaction, perhaps belatedly, um, vis-a-vis India. But you know, you look at Europe, their vaccination rates are terrible. Um, you know, it used to be we were behind everybody, and now we're way ahead of everybody. Um, so there are a lot of countries which are really, really struggling with this. And we sure could do ourselves a lot of good um, by using vaccine diplomacy. um, And really, given a choice, no one wants the Chinese vaccine, they want the American vaccines. Um, So I think it's an opportunity that we shouldn't muff. um, And hopefully, they're coming around to see that.
0: It's interesting the lessons that they've learned, you know, because it's, you know, I think they lived through the Obama administration and they said, we can't be as cautious as Obama, and they're extremely concerned about the twenty twenty two election, as they should be, because if they lose in the midterms, we're going to forget everything that happened last night, um, because the you know GOP is going to un- undo it all. Um, although, just parenthetically, before I go to my question, you know, listening to you. I have read a lot of articles and I've written some things where I've said, you know, it's like FDR. Um, but what it really is like, you're right about the Sputnik moment. There was a really good column in your paper by James Homan on the Sputnik moment. Um, the speech was more Kennedy esque than many speeches that I've heard because of the way it framed America's role in the world, its focus on science. On research and development, on competitiveness, on allies—you know, it. it in, in many ways, it, it's a speech that John. Of course, Joe Biden was 17 years old when John F. Kennedy was elected. Right, this is the first political figure of his adult life. He's the figure that inspired him to want to become a, a, a politician. It's it's a kind of an interesting thing. Two more brief things. One also listening to you guys um, it's interesting that Biden can do what Obama couldn't do because Biden is the gray establishment centrist and and you know it's a little bit like only Nixon could go to China only Begin could talk to Sadat and only Biden could be Bernie Sanders you know in other words you know Bernie can't be Bernie he's too inflammatory but, but if you're wearing a Joe Biden suit and you're presenting it from that perspective, you can actually do some of these big things. And that's kind of the magic of this moment. But all of this gets back to, well, the issues that you've had with your, for, the former party with which you were affiliated. W- watching them last night, it was like you know, watching the stone monoliths on Easter Island. Uh, you know, and, 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 and Biden would sit there and he would say, you know, Ryan was right, but he, he would reach out to them. He would, you know, sort of lean towards them. And he mentioned a couple of things that were Trump initiatives. And, and he was like, you know, and I'm for this thing. And they were dead silent. Ted Cruz was asleep. Mitch McConnell, you know, it's a good thing nobody had any formaldehyde in uh, near him. Um, because they would have started to ab- embalm. What does the GOP do? Just sort of sit there silently, let this stuff go by, and then start running next year saying the election was stolen and you know all this kind of crazy stuff? Or-
3: It is nuts. I mean, what was that Tim Scott speech? That was a hot mess. mess. I don't Um, know. It was was a hot mess. (laughs) It wasn't about anything. Basically, he explained how he had suffered such discrimination as a youth, but now we're not a racist country. Um, He tried to make Trump the hero of, um, you know, the entire uh, uh, COVID response. It was a mess but it was the perfect representation of where they are. They've got nothing. They have not a single policy initiative. You didn't hear a single one from him. When was the last time you heard that in in opposition? Um, There's not a single constructive idea that these people are providing. Their solution to how to stay in power is um, rig the vote, is Jim Crow voter suppression, um, is getting people inflamed over stupid cultural memes, whether it's Dr. Seuss or Biden's coming for your hamburgers, um, that is at such a low intellectual level. um, It really Underscores that these are either really stupid people or they think their base is really stupid, um, and they're not even playing the same game. It's like Biden is in the game in which they're uh, they're playing chess. They're making moves. They're thinking three you know moves ahead, and the other guys are eating the checkers. Um, you know they're just you know throwing up the board. They're making a mess. They're having a tantrum. track, you know. Uh, temper tantrum, they're not even in the same universe of politics. I can't remember another time in which there was less competition of ideas than there is now. At least in the past, if we were polarized, there were uh, two completely different ideas about how we were going to improve the economy, or two completely different ideas about how we were going to deal with Russia. There are no ideas on the Republican side. They've just given up and thrown in the towel. And I sometimes wonder, why do they even bother running for office? Can't they just be on Fox News and leave the governing (laughs) to somebody who cares about it? it? It. It has become a side job to their main job, which is running these cultural uh, wars um, and promoting themselves through right-wing media. So it is the most bizarre thing when you say, what the heck are they going to run on? And um, I think you see not only the absence of an agenda, but the absence of a critique of Biden that makes any sense. you know, for a while, they were saying, oh, you can't raise um, taxes on corporations. Corporations are our friends. (laughs) They turn around and then decide that corporations are bad people, and we got to punish them and um, take away the antitrust exemption for Major League Baseball. So it's all very scattered and, um, you know, incoherent. And listen, it's hard being in the opposition. You don't have a single spokesman. You don't have a single line. But in the past, there was some effort to come up with something coherent. Do we know if the Republicans were in power, what they would be doing on I don't know, infrastructure or COVID or really anything? Um, would they be going back to you know just kind of throwing you know food at one another, or would they have something to offer? I don't see it. Um, So, you know, there was one moment last night that I thought was actually sad. When Liz Cheney, cold warrior, hard right conservative, at least has the decency to applaud and walk over to the aisle as Biden is walking into the chamber and give him the fist bump. And I thought to myself, you know, Biden has more respect for her than other Republicans do. Because at least they are in some same universe where white supremacy is bad and um, following the Constitution is good and reality matters, um, and you know her party is in such a mess um, that you do wonder. like you know this notion of reforming themselves who's going to do the reforming um there really is very few um you know signs of you know green shoots or, or sanity or whatever metaphor you want to use who's going to pull them back from the brink i don't know um and right now they really do look like a mess
0: well they could look more like a mess and we've got about 10 minutes to go what i'd like to do in this section I'd like to ask Ryan a question and Kavita a question and get Jen's response to their answers. Um and, and Ryan, the question I want to ask you has to do a little bit with what the mood's going to be next year, which we talk about periodically. The Republicans don't have anything. But one of the things that may be looming for them is some serious legal problems. And you know, we saw, you know, we've talked about this, and sometimes we're frustrated by the pace of things, but something really bizarre happened yesterday. The president's lawyer, the former U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, had seven federal agents serve a subpoena on him in his house and take away all of his electronics. And apparently, the investigation that this was part of is something that's been going on a long time, that the Trump administration tried to block them from doing this. So I mean, it's it's fairly advanced, and and you can't imagine that they would do this lightly. What do you think the consequence of this is? What does it bode for the future of, um, you know, sort of accountability in Trump world?
1: Um, so I think it does suggest that the criminal investigation is very far along. I do also think it's just, you know, an answer to your first part of your question about some of the political ramifications of it. It sure sounds like Bill Barr tried to squelch it um, last year in part because it would um, inform the American public of the level of corruption on, within the Trump uh, cabal. And so I think we might actually get um, a lot of information about the level of corruption within the Trump cabal over the next, year let's say just out of this particular case um and uh giuliani's you know the other thing that they seized is there's a very high likelihood they've gotten his emails even if the even if uh, president trump never corresponded over email giuliani could easily be corresponding about what his dealings are with trump and uh there's a nexus uh to some of these activities because the activities did involve, it sounds like, a criminal investigation of Giuliani's efforts with respect to Ukraine. Um, and the Reuters report, Reuters actually got a hold of the 2019 uh, grand jury subpoena, and it included things like campaign finance violations, uh, in addition to what everybody's talking about, like foreign agent um, uh, representation of Ukrainian interests uh, with respect to that piece of it. So I think it. Sounds like it might come very close to Trump himself, uh, let alone bringing other people down within the uh, Trump orbit.
3: Well, I guess two things come to mind. First of all, I don't envision Rudy Giuliani wanting to go to prison. So I think he will be so willing to provide whatever information he has to them. Now his credibility is so bad in a way that hurts his negotiating leverage. He makes a terrible witness um, and God knows what's truth and what's not. But um, in some sense, um, the documents will do a lot of the work um, and whatever minimal facts um, he can corroborate may be worth something to prosecutors. Um, His attorneys are certainly gonna try to make a deal if it comes to that. So um, I think we are gonna see a lot And this goes to something else that I've really been wondering about um, since uh, Biden won. And that is, how intent is um, Attorney General uh, Merrick Garland and the Justice Department in going back to explore illegality in the prior administration? From a political standpoint, it actually isn't um, in their interest to go back and get the bad guys. They want nothing to do with relitigating Russia and relitigating Trump. They want to be talking about this fabulous agenda they believe in. But on some moral and legal and um, democratic plane, can we really afford to just say, ah, forget it, the whole thing? If Bill Barr obstructed justice, well, what are you going to do? It's Bill Barr. I mean, Is that really how we're going to operate? Are we really going to have no consequences for people who violated their professional responsibilities, violated um, department policy, potentially lied to courts? I think of something as simple as the census case, where lawyers went into federal court and essentially misrepresented what the rationale for the ill-fated citizenship test was, they eventually got caught, turned around on a dime. Is no one going to pay any professional or personal cost for that fiasco? Um, That does bother me. And um, while I do think it's um, perhaps unwise for this administration to criminally prosecute Trump for, let me say, pre-January 6 events, Um, and I think there are plenty of other, um, ways in which he might be held criminally liable, not only in this basket, but in the tax arena in New York and in Georgia, and there's lots of other potential liability. Although I'm not thrilled about prosecuting a former president, I actually am pretty insistent that people pay a penalty for having gone along with what they knew to be wrong potentially illegal conduct. Um, you know, I, The analogy is ironically, the Magnitsky Act, which we pass so that we can hold underlings accountable and therefore take away the instruments of dictatorship that they use to implement their heinous policies. Aren't they gonna tell, uh, apply some rules of justice to our own people um, after what they've done? There is no shortage of evidence of corruption, of misuse of government funds, of um, obstruction of justice, of lying to courts, of all sorts of things. Um, that's just within the Justice Department. I'm not even talking about the rest of the government. Um, how do you reform and um, reestablish the credibility of the Justice Department if you just kind of sweep all that stuff under the rug? Um, and? I would hope that uh, Merrick Garland, who apparently really is operating independent of Joe Biden, I think Joe Biden was telling the truth when he said he didn't know anything about the Rudy Giuliani raid. That thrills me, by the way, just thrills me. Um, Whether he has um, sort of the initiative without any political support, and he shouldn't have political support, to really kind of take a deep dive into his own department and try to have some accountability. Um, I don't know. What, what do you think, Kavita? Is that worth doing? Am I just, you know, a, a hopeless romantic and thinking that people might be held accountable for um, abusing their professional <laughs> positions?
2: No, I think, and I do think that Merrick Garland is just even colleagues who are working in the Justice Department have echoed that exact sentiment that the Attorney General has made it incredibly clear. By the way, Vanita Gupta, like, I mean, a number of kind of high-ranking justice officials have been consistent in their language that our job is not to make uh, what, you know, not to create what is satisfactory for political headlines for any president, but our job is to hold people accountable. He's, a, he's apparently been internally or on Zoom calls, I gather, saying that exact same thing. And I don't think I've ever heard, you know, if you think about who he is, and and the people he's recruited and Vanita and others, I think that's exactly what they're going to do, but they're going to do it in a way where it's not a gotcha and let's make the president look bad. It's going to be a thoughtful disk. I mean, it is going to be all the things that those of us who are critical of the Mueller kind of report and documents and kind of queries. It seems like it'll kind of help to, fill in a lot of what and, and Ryan, you've written about it. Um, I, th- I do think that this is my concern, though, Jennifer, is that this is going to take time. And, and the American public has a short memory and who knows what other chaos ensues in the interim. And the desire to see that accountability will wane and it won't matter as much. That's what I
0: worry about. Um, I uh, have the concern that is unique to me in each of these podcasts, which is that we've run out of time. And uh, I would like to go on and on and on with this conversation. And Jen, I hope you will come back sometime. You are a wonderful, wonderful guest. It was a great conversation. And Kavita, I had wanted to talk to you a little bit about what's going on in, in, in India in terms of you know, the implications for the US. And I think what I'm going to do is I, w- I will get to you offline and we'll talk about maybe doing a whole show next week. Because I know Ed Luce is one of the great writers on in India. Um, uh, is also extremely interested in this, and maybe we can put something special together because I really think, you know, presidents like Joe Biden have big plans, and then the world intervenes, and you could have a catastrophe in India. It's not just a health catastrophe, but a catastrophe in terms of democracy, in terms of America's whole plan to focus on the Quad and the and make India a cornerstone of the Indo specific strategy. So um, uh, we'll do that next week. And, you know, folks, if you're listening, go to the dsrnetwork.com. You'll find out what we've got coming up. There's a lot of other interesting stuff. We're actually doing a special episode uh, tomorrow, one of the ones where you can join in and ask questions, in which Ed will be joined by Rana Faruhar. and we're gonna talk about something we don't really do deep dives on around here, which is economics certainly appropriate in the context of this speech. And uh, as Jen pointed out, the end of Reaganomics. So go to the DSRnetwork.com. And if you're there, become a member, help support what we're doing on these five podcasts we're now doing every week. Uh, And uh, we'll see again sometime soon. In the meantime, uh, everybody uh, stay healthy.